This is Matters with Mel Faxon and Matteo Itzi. Today on the show, we have Simona Botti, uh, professor of marketing here at LBS. Uh, she teaches the brand management elective as part of the MBA, MBA program at London Business School. Welcome, Simona. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, we're so excited. Me too. Um, just to kind of uh, introduce a little bit about what we want to talk about today, uh, Professor Botti, uh, her research focuses on consumer behavior and decision making. And uh, when we first began talking with, with, uh, with you, Simona, we were discussing things like choice closure. Um, and we're really looking forward to discussing a lot of, about a lot of this today. But first... Uh, yeah, before we begin, uh, we're just going to settle in with some of our quote-unquote rapid fire. They're never that rapid, but just some <laughs> icebreaker questions for you. Um, so did you ever think you would become a part of LBS when you, when you first came to the school? It's interesting because London Business School was one of my uh, dream jobs when I was on the academic job market. It was between here and New York. And I came to give a job talk, so I gave my presentation. I thought I nailed it. I thought that they would want me as much as I wanted them. Turns out that they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't get the job the first time. I didn't get the job in New York City either. I got a job in New York State at Cornell, so I got close to that. And then after three years, they invited me back. I gave another job talk. And then at that point, they did give me a job. So yes, I would have wanted to be in London Business School for a long time. And even earlier than uh, I ended up being. (laughs) So then um, what is one thing that surprised you about London Business School once you had arrived? I thought it was very beautiful. Uh, The building was beautiful. The park was beautiful. I like the atmosphere a lot, and I still like it. Uh, there is some vibe in this school that is very difficult to classify and, and, and pinpoint, but um, I really like it. Maybe because it's a smaller school, it's a friendly school, um, the staff are very nice, and the you know, colleagues are nice. I mean, there is a niceness, I don't know how to say, uh, that is different from um, the American schools I've been used to. They are a little bit more corporate, uh, usually because they're also bigger and um, and uh, part of a bigger bigger institution, uh, but here I felt always at home. So that surprised me. This feeling of being comfortable. Right, and I think you're talking to two Americans who felt very similarly when they made really? their school choices. So. <laughs> um, and then last question: What is a secret thing about London or the UK that you really enjoy? Best pizza in London. I don't know if I can say the place because, I mean, maybe then there'll be too many too many people going there. But I always thought I'd miss my pizza. I'm a pizza lover. And I did find a pizza that is at least as good to, as, as the one that you can find in Italy and in Naples. Okay. Where so is we, it? Can yeah, you tell well, me? <laughs> maybe we'll discuss after so we can keep this... The, yes, the lid on it, yes. or, but I'm actually surprised though that that's something that you consider to be like a highlight. I almo- yeah. almost feel like <laughs> you know you it just is. go back to Italy to have the pizza, but it's... yeah, no. Uh, I mean, if I go back to my hometown, there is not very good pizza. Ah. This is like really Napolitana pizza, oh, and I don't okay. go back to Naples. You know, I have friends there, mm-hmm. but I don't go there that often. And food is very important for me. Food and drinks is uh, a highlight of uh, my. 
day. So good food and good drinks, important. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that, and I will definitely be finding out where this pizza yes. place is. Yes. Um, so just moving into our topic for today, um, if anyone has ever uh, been part of your brand management lectures, like I had the pleasure of being part of, um, I know you focus quite a bit about choice as it pertains to consumer purchase decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about like what interests you in this area? I always say that what interests me in, in you know, the area of choice is that I'm a really bad chooser. I've always been a bad chooser. And I think it is because I'm a maximizer. So my choices have to be always the best. Mm-hmm. I cannot just satisfy and say this is good enough. And nowadays, to have that feeling that you've made the best choice is very difficult and is very anxiety, you know, uh, arising for me. Because there are so many options, the things that you do not choose can be very well much better than the things that you choose. Uh, I tend to compare what I do with what I could have done, with what I should have done. And so the process of making choices is always very difficult for me. So I agonize uh, on choices. I'm not a, like a, a fast chooser. I'm not a person that, that, that chooses and then let go. And, uh, and because it's so difficult for me, I've always been interested in like how other people do that because I look around and it seems to me people make you know, a lot of choices all the time, very big choices, very important choices, getting married, having kids, moving, and they seem to be doing all the time, you know, <laughs> much easier than, than, uh, than, than me. And so, yeah, so that, that was always interesting for me, how people go through a variety of choices, a lot of important choices, more and more choices. There are more and more situations in which today we have to make choices that in the past were made for us by other entities, the government, the marketers, other people. Um, and people seem to like this fact that they have control over their life and that they have all these options and all these opportunities to say what they think and what they want. And I find it really scary. And, uh, and so I was interested to kind of, you know, figure out whether I'm the weird one uh, or there is some underlying process, underlying truth about um, human being, human psychologies that can be uncovered. And this rush to choose and giving people choice is actually, you know, make, you know, does it make people happier or better? Is it right? Is it good? Um, should we actually limit the amount of choice that people have? Should we control it? Should we help them? You know, uh, it seems that it's too easy to say, let's solve everything by giving consumers or people the choice to decide what they want. Um, And so that's why I got interested in uh, finding a little bit more. I'm still a very bad chooser. I don't think it's ever going to change, but it's going to get worse over time. And I still do not know what, you know, makes people being so into choices and so happy about having choices. But I have a little bit of better idea than, than I than I had like when I started like 15, 20 years ago. And I'm sure that upon taking your brand management elective, yeah. you learn all about things like the basically the, the entire pre-decision uh, field that um, that is close to your research in the past. Um, but uh, we wanted to kind of push towards the post-decision or post-choice and talk a little bit about that, um, such as studying and crafting nudges um, to push uh, behavior a certain way and, and what, is the, what is the effect? Um, yes. What is the kind of um, 
So what can you tell us about that field of consumer behavior? Yeah. So there's been a lot of work in consumer behavior and decision making about how to nudge people in doing what is supposed to be what's best for them. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is also a lot of um, debate about whether this is um, the right or wrong thing to do. Ethically. Ethically, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it seems like a more kind of paternalistic stance and what if people do not want to do what's best for them or what's best for them is not what's best for the rest of society. But anyway, so that is a whole story and uh, starting with uh, this idea of uh, choice architecture um, the most recent Nobel Prize in Economics, Richard Taylor has like a book on, on nudges. So there's been a lot of work on how you can influence or direct choices before the choice happens. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm interested, of course, this is very interesting, but I'm more interested in what happens after you have made a choice and how can you find ways in which you can increase the amount of utility that you can get from that choice. Mm-hmm. So I'm almost saying, I'm almost saying, uh, I'm almost agnostic on whether this choice is good or bad, or you could have done, you know, worse or better. But I'm saying, given that, I assume that people do their best during the process of choice or try to do their best. Once they finally make a decision, how can we? allow them to be as happy as possible with that decision. Now, I think this is interesting, but of course, there are two ethical uh, issues that you can consider. Because if somebody made a good choice, then it seems a good thing to say, like, well, you made a good choice, you put all this effort to make a good choice, how can you extract maximum utility out of this choice? But you can also think, well, what if you made a bad choice? Is it ethically the right thing to do to say, like, well, let's try to extract the maximum utility out of this bad choice versus, well, you know, get out of the choice, break the choice and start over again and make another choice that is better? Um, which I agree. Uh, I think it, it, it is important to make sure that people do not persist in their mistakes. But I think my perspective is a little bit different. My perspective is that you know, most choices are okay, right? They're not terrible and they're not great. But we have a tendency to try to think about what's next or think about how we can improve what we have rather than taking stock of what we have, taking stock of what we've decided and try to get the best of it. So you're speaking like in a consequence mindset instead of an outcome, like based on that one choice, you you have an outcome that you can kind of look at and analyze instead of thinking about what are your array of, of next choices. Yes, a little bit like that. So you should, you know, in a sense, get confident about yourself, get confident about the fact that you made that choice. There must be something good in it unless, of course, it's a really, really big mistake. So let's put those big, big mistakes on the side that can happen. But if you've made something and you've tried to make the best, then probably there is something good in that outcome. And so how can you bring it back? How can you bring it out as much as you can? I think this would make us, in general, much happier. So my examples in this um, domain are two two main examples. So one is about relationships. And I think people always can can relate to that. And the other one is about um, 
choosing what to study. So relationships, again, you know, you pick a partner. Is it the best person on earth? No, that person is going to have good things and bad things like everybody else. If we keep thinking about who else we could have been with, I'm pretty sure that we're going to try to make the counterfactuals in which you're going to think about all the good things that people, other people may have and your partner doesn't have. Um, I think it would be interesting to switch and say, what are the good things that this guy <laughs> has? Like, so trying to get as much utility out of the person that you have picked. Um, because otherwise it's very easy to, um, to be unhappy with what you have. Because we tend to focus on the negative things rather than on the positive things. Um, we call this choice closure, and, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. But this is kind of the underlying process. Instead of reminding yourself, you know, I've done a good choice. I could have been much worse. Uh, people tend to say, well, I've done a kind of a worse choice. I could have been much better off with another person. Because, again, the negativity of the day-to-day can become more important than the positivity. Mm-hmm. And the options around us are many. And so it's very easy to compare the person that you picked with a lot of other person that you could have picked or you could have been with. Okay. And with majors or what to study, I think it's very similar. So my um, personal experience was that I never thought about being a business school professor. I never thought about marketing when I was, you know, 18. I wanted to be an actress. I always wanted to say that. And I wanted to be an actress. I really liked theater. I was in some theater. I really liked it. And that was my dream. And I remember once I was in, in the car with my father. My father was, was driving. And my father asked me, I was maybe six, 17, 16, 17. And he asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an actress. And my dad says, like, I don't think so. <laughs> this is not going to happen. I'm not going to pay for any acting classes because you need a job. You know, you need to make money. This is a very difficult domain which you can achieve, you know, a position that is comfortable. And so it was very rational about it. So at that point, I didn't have any other, you know, dream. I didn't, I didn't care. Anything else was pretty much the same. And so my dad says, like, why don't you go to this business school? Apparently, it's easy to find a job afterward. It was a private business school in, in Italy that had a good reputation for a place that where you actually do find a job afterwards. So I said, like, okay, sure. So when I started, I really couldn't care less about business, couldn't care less about what I was studying. But instead of telling myself this is a bad choice and I could have been doing something else, I could have been doing acting or, you know, law or literature or all the other options out there, I just focused on that one thing. I just took that one choice for granted and tried to make it as best as possible. And so this idea, this almost this tunnel vision, I think helped me in finally graduating well and started work at the university because the professor liked what I was doing and eventually having a life that I, I love. You know, I like doing what I do. I like being a business school. I like teaching marketing. I just couldn't forecast that when I was 16 or 17. So then to connect back, it was almost as if because the choice, I guess you didn't perceive it to be one that was heavy or important at the beginning, you were able to extract what you believe to be maximum utility. 
yes. from it afterwards, or the closure, the choice closure was enhanced or something. Yeah, so I'll get to choice closure in a second, but I think it's not really because I didn't think it was important. I just didn't ask myself what else could I have been doing. Okay. Even though that was didn't feel like the best choice at that point, and I could have done better by being, you know, an actress, I just didn't repeat that possibility to myself every morning when I was going to school. I just took it. I just took stock of it, like 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 I said, and go with it. And then it helped me, I guess, keep myself focused on then trying to see, well, what is the most that I can get out of this choice now that I've done it? Within the, within the constraints that were in front yeah. of you instead of kind of inventing other alternative realities yes. Yes. in your mind. Yes, and I have a lot of other friends who like started with one major and then they didn't like it and then switched to another major and then switched to another major and all this switching then, you know, didn't really allow them probably, and then maybe they didn't even graduate. Mm -hmm. right. uh, so all this possibility to change a mind, to make another choice, to revise a choice, then uh, ended up in their case probably being in a place that is worse than I have been um, doing and I am right now. Um, so, so I like this idea of kind of focusing on what you've done rather than keep thinking about what else you could be doing. Right. Yeah, I think there's like that expression, the what if will kill you. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of goes like that. But I think that's also a very difficult thing to tell people to do is to not think about oh, the yes. what if. So I how I guess it's like a good thing to like focus on the good thing. But yeah. how 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 do you actually get people to change right. their mindset and, and do that? But that's very difficult of course, but so we've done some 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 work on what we call choice closure. Um, so choice closure has from a psychological perspective, has been studied for a long time, also from a, um, a clinical psychology perspective. So people who have gone through traumatic experiences, how do you close with that experience? How do you have the experience behind your back? Um, there are a lot of metaphors, like, uh, you know, turn your back onto something, close the door on something. Uh, close the book, turn the page. These are all expressions that, that we use when we want to say, like, well, this thing happened. You cannot change it, but you have to accept it psychologically that it's happened and that it's over and that you cannot undo it and then you have to move on. So psychologically, there is some literature on what they call psychological closure that refers to events and mainly to negative events. So we try to study this in the domain of choices and consumption choices, so nothing big, nothing big traumatic. <laughs> um, but we try to apply kind of the same ideas in the domain of choices. So it's not events, but they're choices. So once you've made a choice, as you know, been discussing so far, how can you tell yourself that choice is over, the choice process is over? Now I have an outcome. How can I focus on this outcome rather than trying to go back to the choice process and think about what could I have done differently? In order to do that, you have to accept that the choice is over. And so how do you psychologically have this sense of finality of the choice process? And once you achieve the sense of finality of the choice process, we think this allows you to focus on the outcome rather than on the counterfactuals that you can do. So I picked a chocolate out of 32 chocolates. 
I can, while I eat the chocolate, I can ask myself, hmm, maybe I should have picked the other one. Maybe I should have picked the dark chocolate or the white chocolate. Hmm, there was another one that I like cherry, and maybe I should have picked that one. The enjoyment of eating that one chocolate while thinking about how you could have undone this choice or could have done the choice differently, it's going to go down. And we think that is while you eat the chocolate that you picked, you do not think about the chocolate that you have left there, your rejected options, because you accept that decision process, because that decision process is over, it's going to make you like that chocolate more. And this is what we find in, a, in a several studies. The way in which we try to induce this choice closure is originally we did it with an act of closure. So in one experiment, individuals would pick a chocolate out of a lot of chocolates and then eat it with this chocolate in front of them, with the mm -hmm. rejected chocolate in front of them. While in another condition, they would put a lid, a transparent lid on top of the rejected chocolate before eating the chosen one. And that act of putting the lid, we thought, would trigger this idea of closure, would trigger, would make people realize, like, this is over, and then let me move on. And in fact, this is what we found, that when you eat the chocolate after putting the lid, you like the chocolate more than uh, if you do not put the lid. So if you think about, you know, more practical perspective, how can marketers use this idea to try to make people more satisfied with the choice that they made? Um, maybe putting lids or closing menus. This is also what we tried, having menus that instead of being tablets, they are uh, kind of booklets so you can close it after making your choices that works too relative to menus that you cannot close but we also then try to to think about how you can design web space web pages for example and so in some studies we put little um, labels that would say not selected or rejected on the rejected options on the screen so imagine like a website or a web page and that works too. Hmm. It's just a reminder that you have not selected those things, but the reminder in itself seems to allow people to put those things out of their mind, like if something that is you know, behind their back, uh, something that they've uh, reached closure with, and so they like the outcome better. It seems like within an organization that might be controversial, especially since in a lot of contexts consumers are in like perpetually at the top of the funnel, right? Yeah. So like if you're at a store, you literally sometimes have to leave the store to extract value in, in real life from whatever you purchase. But if you're in a web-based like e-commerce, you can just keep buying, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Like, it hasn't even shown up yet, but you're still yeah. in the store. So how, yeah. do you, how do you think that that yeah. then impacts like how a marketer might decide because I think from my experience I'd feel I'd feel a lot of pressure from sales being like no you don't <laughs> you, you can't do that because that that's kind of reducing the number of occasions yes or something like that. so I think it there are two different objectives one objective is like how much how happy you want the consumers to be from the choice that they made from the purchase that they made and we know that happiness also down the line brings more loyalty more repeated you know purchase but it's a more kind of a long-term kind of idea if you want them to buy more, then you have to elicit this regret, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> the more you can think about, oh, you could have done better, you could have bought something else, you could have bought something else, then probably in the same 
um, purchase trip, you can have people buy more stuff, right? And it's a very good, it's an empirical question in terms of the company or the brand or the profit, what is better to have happy people uh, or people who buy more because probably they have this anxiety that they have to buy more. I don't know. I mean, uh, or maybe I, a combination of the two. I can't even think two. about it right now. <laughs> it just makes me anxious thinking about how anxious I could be. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that, that from, not really from a consumer behavior perspective, but from like a, a personal perspective, um, again, we can question this idea of choice closure, as I mentioned, is that what if the choice that you made is bad? You pick the bad guy. Uh, doesn't mean that you have to get, you know, be stuck with that guy for the rest of your life. Or um, you really pick the bad major, the major that you really hate. Doesn't mean that you have to hate the rest of your life because you're going to be in the... So that, I think, is where this idea of closure can be seen as something that is not um, for, for not really taking out the happiest moments uh, out of uh, people's decisions. So, and of course, there are these extreme cases in which, of course, it's not good to have closure. And actually, it's good to go back and revisit what one, what one person has done and try to see whether they can improve. Um, but I think, again, uh, in the majority of, not in the majority, there are a lot of situations in which we are too quick in trying to go back and change what we have done. Uh, too quick in trying to undo what we have done at the first difficulty. So we judge a bad choice or a bad outcome too quickly, and the moment in which we judge it as bad, then we want to undo it. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is the, that what we are trying to say. Um, and the other thing that we're trying to say is that this idea of choice closure actually doesn't work for very good things. So the extreme, the very good things, you shouldn't be closing them. You should actually be trying to remind yourself of how good you have done. Right? <laughs> so if you pick a really great guy, then I think it's better to go back on whatever Facebook and look at how all the other potential candidates did. <laughs> if they did badly, they don't look very attractive. If they look like you know that you're not interested any longer, then you say like, man, you know, I did pick the best guy. And this reminding of yourself that you have done well relative to the alternatives, you could have done much worse, also increases your satisfaction. Do you think, I think it's interesting to kind of think about technology coming into this, because I think now that you have Facebook and you can go follow up on all the people that you said no to, or even if you think about <laughs> dating apps and the fact that there's always the next person to swipe. So mm -hmm. the second you have a bad date with one person, you you know there's all these unlimited options behind you. So I think it's kind of like that experiment with the chocolate you said, that if you don't put the lid on it, you're never going to be as satisfied. And so like, have you, have, have people's, has there been like a correlation of anxiety or of how people feel about choices with the introduction of technology? Because I'm guessing you just have so much more exposure to... So I don't have research that I've done myself, but I would suspect that that's the case. So we know there is a lot of research on so-called choice overload, that the more choices we have, the more we become overloaded by the options in front of us, and this decreases, again, our happiness with whatever we pick, or increases what's called choice paralysis. We end up not picking anything because, again, anything we pick, there could have been like so much more you know, better things, and so people don't do anything. So technology just increased exponentially this phenomenon. 
because if before you would go to a store, before even today, but if you go to a physical store and you have 300 shampoo to pick, then if you go to an online store, you have like 30,000 shampoo to pick. And so it's just a, an exponential um, amount of, of choice overload. So if it is, if you can just transpose what happens in the physical world to the online world, yet, then I would say yes. Um, there is much more anxiety, much more overload, just becoming more and more difficult, unless you're very good at closing them yourself, because there are person like they're called satisficers, people just say like, I pick one, good enough, I don't care. Or there are mechanisms, there's a choice architecture that allows you to close, so to reach closure better after you've picked. Um, however, some people think differently. Some people think that for example, with all this technology, we have access to a lot of information, and this information will allow us to make choices, maybe better choices or easier choices. Um, and in fact, the brand are not going to be as important any longer because now you can really understand what's the quality of what you have. You can compare. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that people have all this time and cognitive resources to really use all the information available in front of them in a way that is so rational and, and so positive. I think that there is always going to be the, the cons of all this, which is an overload of information, an overload of options, an overload of choice that um, doesn't allow you to reach closure that easy. So picking up from there, let's say you're not a... What did you say, satisfier? So yes, you're not. You don't have a good choice architecture in front of you. Yes. What are some ways that, um, I guess, how might someone like that, <laughs> not, not pointing any fingers here, <laughs> actually learn how to reach closure? And I, before you mentioned things like setting reminders, but I mean, is there are there some fundamental ways that you can change your behavior to start kind of consistently reaching closure? <laughs> uh, if I knew, I would do it myself. <laughs> so I think I don't have an answer to that. I have this kind of context-based situation. So I can say in a context in which you have label that is rejected versus label that, or versus no label, then you will, you know, more likely, will be more likely to reach choice closure there. A context in which you can physically close whatever is in front of you um, then, you know, rather than you can't, then should allow you to reach just closure more. Of course, situation which you can forget about the options, um, that's even better because in all the, in, you know, from a, from a technical point of view, whenever we do these studies, we have to make the options physically available to participants in both cases. It's just a psychological system that kicks in. But it's not that they cannot actually reach those choices any longer, that those chocolates. They could look at the chocolates, they could think about the chocolates. They are in front of them as much as they are in front of the people without the lid. The lid is transparent. But if you could make the choice, the closure even stronger, for example, the options are not available any longer. So physically, you cannot reach them or, you know, whatever, cognitively, you cannot reach them, that's even better. So the more space and time you can put between you and these uh, options, I guess the easier it would be 
to each closure. In fact, from a psychological perspective, time is one of the uh, main factors that can uh, allow you to reach a closure, especially for tragic events, right? They say mm -hmm. like, you know, it's very difficult to get over them. The only thing that can help you is time. So I don't know, I guess this is more of a clinical psychology kind of, uh, of question. Uh, will, I don't know, burn the clothes of your uh, ex-boyfriend <laughs> help you or will, like, you know, delete all the account, yeah, help you right. probably. Delete the app. <laughs> yeah. delete because the it's going to be more physically more difficult to get right. there, right? Well, I wonder if even, like, for a lot of us who are looking for jobs now and are trying to figure out what we're going to do out after school and wondering, are you making the right choice? So you could probably even just print out three emails or something and then just rip apart and the two. Rip apart and, the I, feel, I feel like that act of just saying like, no, I'm done with this and I'm not going to think about it any longer. You could even just write it. Yeah. Blow torch, mate. Yeah. I mean, however passionately <laughs> you feel, I think you can use any mechanism to destroy the, the options that you're rejecting. The higher it, the magnitude yeah. feels, just be, feels more right. Stomp on it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, or even, even the rejection emails that you get. I think that act of like, deleting it or or printing it just I feel like it probably would give you more closure you see what is very interesting is that naturally people do the opposite of what we've been talking about so far whenever something bad happened to them they don't close it and whenever something good happens to them they close it so you know you pass an exam you whatever you reach some sort of milestone you get the good guy the good guy or whatever we take it for granted very quickly. It's like, yeah, I mean, of course I passed the exam. Of course I got the good guy. Of course I reached this milestone. You know, what else could have happened? And then let me move on. And for bathing is the opposite. The rejection letter is going to be in your mind forever. When I get the evaluation from the students, mm. you know, the negative evaluations, I keep thinking about them. The positive evaluation, like, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah of course. <laughs> I know, you know I'm awesome. I'm so good. Yeah. And so we naturally tend to do the opposite. We tend to keep those negative things that happen with us and negative choices that we have made open. And we tend to close on the positive events and the positive choices. So naturally, we do the opposite of what we should be doing, which is actually keep the positive things open and keep thinking about you know, how well we're doing and try to close the negative things and try to you know, not obsess for the things that we could have done better. So I think we have a recipe for unhappiness. And, uh, and then, you know, if we could do the opposite, it'd be much better. Now, can we do it deliberately? That's another good question. So can we deliberately tell ourselves, let me delete the account of the person who hurt me and let me really think about every morning how lucky I am to be at London Business School, to do this job, to be with this person, to be able to do these things. Maybe. Um, again, I don't have evidence, but I think we should try to be doing this more often. Is, are there ways in which you can, I'm just thinking about a lot of times external um, stimulus is more helpful than something that we are just telling ourselves. The ways that we can kind of tell other people or, or, you know, people we know, help help them just really sub, even subconsciously yeah, reach wow. closure so that they're like, oh, wow, <laughs> thanks for telling me that. Yes, exactly. I Yeah, I mean, this is something that can be tested, right? There is a lot of um, research now on this gratefulness 
on, you know, telling yourself how grateful you are about things. It's kind of similar. Uh, if every day you write down, yeah, I've heard you know, that's like the writing, grateful right? you are about, you know, the day that you had, the person that you had, it's kind of every time kind of reopen that thing. And you say like, well, I, I, you know, I chose to be in this situation. I chose this person. I chose this city. I chose this school. I chose this job. And I'm grateful about it. I think it's a, it's a matter, it's a way in which you do not take things for granted and think this is, you know, this is just something that I've done and, you know, that's it, it's over. It's, mm -hmm. again, it's a closed book, it's behind my back and mm -hmm. keeps it like, well, it's not really, I'm still living it, I'm still into it. Right? right. For when people have made a bad choice, so say you, I don't know, pick a job that you don't want or you start dating someone you don't like, we still have that choice to end it, right? Yeah. So there's always the, it's not, I feel like none of these things are, perm I mean, I guess it depends on the sanctity of the relationship <laughs> and how you agree with certain things, but there is always the choice to leave. And so it, is that another kind of element of choice closure of not being able to make the choice to change the, the, the bad choice? So that, that's, uh, that's where I have a little bit of trouble with my thinking. When do you get to that point? So when... When is it that that is, that is too early to undo your choice? And is there like a moment in which, in which you should kind of endure the choice that you've made because that's one way to get closure with right. it? Uh, and when it is too much uh, or too long or, or... So that I don't know. Um, the only thing I'm saying again is that today is a bit too easy to undo these choices. And this may be the may, may take away the possibility to try to extract maximum value. So if, you, if we are more thinking about how can I undo it rather than how can I leave it, then there is, it's, it's more and more likely that you keep doing choices, you keep undoing choices and you never really take that choice and try to, to make the best of it. Uh, so the easier it is to go back and revise what you've chosen, I think the more difficult is going to be to be happy with it. But there is going to be a moment in which really you have to understand that was a bad choice. Right. Now, when that happens, it's, um, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, again, that too, I have a little bit problems in kind of um, um, understand when too much is too much. Right. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have any suggestion right. there. Because yeah, I would think for like a consumer decision, it's a little bit easier because you can always return something yeah, or yeah. bring it back. But yeah, for the kind of bigger life choices, I would think that I would love to just like read more about that. What is the sweet spot of yes. like tunnel vision, making it the best of it to this is a horrible thing. Yes. <laughs> but, but it's interesting because from a pure happiness perspective, sometimes it seems that people who are who just don't ask that many questions, they seem to be happier somehow. So uh, people have like certainties. Um, sometimes they seem to be happier because otherwise you can question everything. And it's just the idea of questioning everything. It's, um, you know, it's heavy. Um, so, yeah, how do you get to this certainty, though? That's the point. And uh, as usual, some people have kind of individual traits. Um, some people really believe in certain, they believe in certain institutions, in certain religion, in certain, and so they kind of delegate these choices to these other entities, um, and they don't question those, right? Um, so I think, in, I think sometimes that 
helps. But again, we can question is, is the objective really to be happier? You know, maybe not. I mean, it's just like, you know, um, you know, if happiness means that you have to become less inquisitive or less critical or less, well, maybe, you know, some people do not want that, right? Do not want to be like stupid and happy or, <laughs> or you know, narrow-minded and happy or they want to to take all the challenges that, that life offers to them. So that's also another philosophical question. <laughs> but it's really then more of a question on when you exercise the control you have, right? Yeah. So to me, the that what you said, the idea of what happiness means is almost as if you're not you're you're electing not to change. Yes. Or you're you're kind of in a, a, a period of stasis or something like that. Yeah. I think that that's what I think the the way in which I'm thinking about choices right now is that um, you have to really figure out what are the battles that you want to fight. And so kind of say like, well, in these kind of situations, I really want to have my choices. I really, you know, put all my efforts to make these choices, all my time. And I'm not going to close the choice. I'm going to always reconsider that. And so I'm going to be, you know, focusing all my energy in having control and making choices in certain domains that are very important to me. And in other domains, you know what? I leave it to somebody else, you know? It's almost almost (laughs) like contextualizing someone's personality via the... The closure they choose yes. not to seek. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so for me, for example, going back to brands, I mean, brands are great because they take the choice away from you, right? I mean, you know, you, you like that brand and you just... System one. Yeah, you just go with a brand and they, you know, and they don't even question, could you pick something else? Are they really good? Are they worth the money that you pay? Just, you know, it's something out of your mind. Um, and... You know, you can think about choices that choices are more important and choices are more trivial. And I think the problem that I see sometimes is that we are like stuck with all these trivial choices, though, yes. <laughs> right? And we, we, you know, we say like, oh, I have control over my life because I can make all these little choices. And then there are really big, big choices that are taken away from us. We don't even know. We don't even realize. We don't even care. So again, what battle do you want to pick? What domains do you want to accept control? You should be very careful on those uh, because sometimes we have an illusion that we are in control of our life just because we can pick all these little things online and then actually they're like very big questions that, you know, somebody else is deciding for us and, and we, you know, we don't even have the time to, to worry about it. Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation and um, I've learned a lot and about, I'm about to go rip up a lot of things. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or even like, even like the Marie Kondo, like this no longer gives me joy. And when you throw, just yeah. this no longer brings me joy. Um, but thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you. It was um, a pleasure. And hopefully I didn't rumble too much because when I get into these topics, I'm like, uh, you know, I can talk forever. So. No, it was fascinating. Hopefully there is something Figurati. rational coming out. <laughs> Un piacere, grazie. Un tutto il piacere nostro, grazie. <laughs> All right, and uh, thank you all for joining, and we uh, look forward to seeing you again next week. Matters is made by Mel Faxon and Matteo Itzi. It is recorded at the London Business School Recording Studio by Stuart Barton. 
Our theme music was written and performed by Matt Jackson. <laughs>